Hello, my darling, and welcome to today's story time. If you like what you hear, please make sure to like, comment, and subscribe. And now, on with our story time. Chapter 4 I can hardly describe the mood in which I was left by this harrowing episode. An episode at once mad and pitiful grotesque, and terrifying. A grocery boy had prepared me for it, yet the reality left me nonetheless bewildered and disturbed. Puerile though the story was, old Zadok's insane earnestness and horror had communicated to me a mounting unrest which joined with my earlier sense of loathing for the town and its blight of intangible shadow. Later, I might sift the tale and extract some nucleus of historic allegory. Just now, I wished to put it out of my head. The hour had grown perilously late. My watch said 7.15, and the Arkham bus left town square at 8. So I tried to give my thoughts as neutral and practical a cast as possible. Meanwhile... Walking rapidly through the deserted streets of gaping roofs and leaning houses toward the hotel where I had checked my bag and would find my bus. Though the golden light of late afternoon gave the ancient roofs and decrepit chimneys an air of mystic loveliness and peace, I could not help glancing over my shoulder now and then. I would surely be very glad to get out of malodorous and fear-shadowed in's mouth, and wish there were some other vehicle than the bus driven by that sinister-looking fellow-sergeant. Yet I did not hurry too precipitately, for there were architectural details worth viewing at every silent corner, and I could easily, I calculated, cover the necessary distance in a half-hour studying the grocery youth's map and seeking a route I had not traversed before. I chose Marsh Street instead of State for my approach to Town Square. Near the corner of Ball Street, I began to see scattered groups of furtive whisperers, and when I finally reached the square, I saw that almost all the loiterers were congregated around the door of the Gilman House. It seemed as if many bulging, watery, and unwinking eyes looked oddly at me as I claimed my bag in the lobby, and I hoped that none of these unpleasant creatures would be my fellow passengers on the coach. The bus, rather early, rattled in with three passengers somewhat before eight, and an evil-looking fellow on the sidewalk muttered a few indistinguishable words to the driver. Sergeant threw out a mailbag and a roll of newspapers and entered the hotel, while the passengers, the same men whom I had seen arriving in Newburyport that morning, shambled to the sidewalk and exchanged some faint, guttural words with a loafer in a language I could have sworn was not English. I boarded the empty coach and took the same seat I had taken before, but was hardly settled before Sergeant reappeared and began mumbling in a throaty voice of peculiar 
repulsiveness. I was, it appeared, in very bad luck. There had been something wrong with the engine, despite the excellent time made from Newburyport, and the bus could not complete the journey to Arkham. No, it could not possibly be repaired that night, nor was there any other way of getting transportation out of Innsmouth, either to Arkham or elsewhere. The sergeant was sorry, but I would have to stop over at the Gilman. Probably the clerk would make the price easy for me, but there was nothing else to do. Almost dazed by this sudden obstacle, and violently dreading the fall of night in this decaying and half-unlighted town, I left the bus and re-entered the hotel lobby, where the sullen, strange-looking night clerk told me I could have room for twenty-four on the next top floor, large, but without running water, for one dollar. Despite what I had heard of this hotel in Newburyport, I signed the register, paid my dollar, let the clerk take my bag, and followed that sour, solitary attendant up three creaking flights of stairs, past dusty corridors, which seemed wholly devoid of life. My room, a dismal rear one with two windows and bare, cheap furnishings, overlooked a dingy courtyard, otherwise hemmed in by low, deserted brick blocks, and commanded a view of decrepit westward-stretching roofs with a marshy countryside beyond. At the end of the corridor was a bathroom, a discouraging relic with an ancient marble bowl, tin tub, faint electric light, and musty wooden paneling all around the plumbing fixtures. It still being daylight, I descended to the square and looked around for a dinner of some sort, noticing as I did so the strange glances I received from the unwholesome loafers. Since the grocery was closed, I was forced to patronize the restaurant I had shunned before. A stooped, narrow-headed man with staring, unwinking eyes, and a flat-nosed wench with unbelievably thick, clumsy hands being in attendance. The service was of the counter type, and it relieved me to find that much was evidently served from cans and packages. A bowl of vegetable soup with crackers was enough for me, and I soon headed back for my cheerless room at the Gilman, getting an evening paper and a fly-speckled magazine from the evil-visaged clerk at the rickety stand beside his desk. As twilight deepened, I turned on the one feeble electric bulb over the cheap, iron-framed bed, and tried as best as I could to continue the reading I had begun. I felt it advisable to keep my mind wholesomely occupied, for it would not do to brood over the abnormalities of this ancient, light-shadowed town while I was still within its borders. The insane yarn I had heard from the aged drunkard did not promise very pleasant dreams, and I felt I must keep the image of his wild, watery eyes as far as possible from my imagination. Also, I must not dwell on what that factory inspector 
had told the Newburyport ticket agent about the Gilman house and the voices of its nocturnal tenants. Not on that, nor on the face beneath the tiara in the black church doorway, the face for whose horror my conscious mind could not account. It would perhaps have been easier to keep my thoughts from disturbing topics had the room not been so gruesomely musty. As it was, the lethal mustiness blended hideously with the town's general fishy odor and persistently focused one's fancy on death and decay. Another thing that disturbed me was the absence of a bolt on the door of my room. One had been there, as marks clearly showed, but there were signs of recent removal. No doubt it had become out of order, like so many other things in this decrepit edifice. In my nervousness, I looked around and discovered a bolt on the clothes press, which seemed to be of the same size, judging from the marks, as the one formerly on the door. To gain a partial relief from the general tension, I busied myself by transforming this hardware to the vacant place with the aid of a handy three-in-one device, including a screwdriver, which I kept on my keyring. The bolt fit perfectly, and I was somewhat relieved when I knew I could shoot it firmly upon retiring. Not that I had any real apprehension of its need, but that any symbol of security was welcome in an environment of this kind. There were adequate bolts on the two lateral doors to connecting rooms, and these I proceeded to fashion. I did not undress, but decided to read until I was sleepy, and then lie down with only my coat, collar, and shoes off, taking a pocket flashlight from my bag. I placed it in my trousers, so that I could read my watch if I woke up later in the dark. Drowsiness, however, did not come, and when I stopped to analyze my thoughts, I found my disquiet. I was really unconsciously listening for something, listening for something which I dreaded, but could not name. That inspector's story must have worked on my imagination more deeply than I had suspected. Again, I tried to read, but found I made no progress. After a time, I seemed to hear the stairs and corridors creak at intervals, as if with footsteps and wondered if the other rooms were beginning to fill up. There were no voices, however, and it struck me that there was something suddenly furtive about the creaking. I did not like it, and debated whether I had better try to sleep at all. This town had some strange people, and there had undoubtedly been several disappearances. Was this one of those inns where travelers were slain for their money? Surely, I had no look of excessive prosperity. Or were the townsfolk really so resentful about curious visitors? Had my obvious sightseeing, with its frequent map consultations, aroused unfavorable notice? It occurred to me that I must be in a highly nervous state to let a few random creakings set me off, speculating in this fashion. I regretted nonetheless that I was unarmed. At length, feeling a fatigue which had nothing of drowsiness in it, I bolted the newly outfitted hall door, turned off the light, 
and threw myself down on the hard, uneven bed, coat, collar, shoes, and all. In the darkness, every faint noise of the night seemed magnified, and a flood of unpleasant thoughts swept over me. I was sorry I had put out the light, yet was too tired to rise and turn it on again. Then, after a long, dreary interval, and prefaced by a fresh creaking of stairs and corridor, there came that soft, unmistakable sound which seemed like a malign fulfillment of all my apprehensions. Without the least shadow of a doubt, the lock on my hall door was being tried, cautiously, furtively, tentatively, with a key. My sensations upon recognizing this sign of actual peril were perhaps less rather than more tumultuous because of my previous vague fears. I had been, albeit, without definite reason, instinctively on my guard, and that was to my advantage in the new and real crisis, whatever it might turn out to be. Nevertheless, a change in the menace from vague premonition to immediate reality was a profound shock and fell upon me with the force of a genuine blow. It never once occurred to me that the fumbling might be a mere mistake. Malign purpose was all I could think of, and I kept deathly quiet, awaiting the would-be intruder's next move. After a time, the cautious rattling ceased, and I heard the room to the north entered with a passkey. Then the lock of the connecting door to my room was softly tried. The bolt held, of course, and I heard the floor creak as the prowler left the room. After a moment, there came another soft rattling, and I knew that the room to the south of me was being entered. Again, a furtive trying of a bolted connecting door, and again, a receding creaking. This time... The creaking went along the hall and down the stairs, so I knew that the prowler had realized the bolted condition of my doors and was giving up his attempt for a greater or lesser time, as the future would show. The readiness with which I fell into a plan of action proves that I must have been subconsciously fearing some menace and considering possible avenues of escape for hours. From the first... I felt that the unseen fumbler meant a danger not to be met or dealt with, but only to be fled from as quickly as possible. The one thing to do was to get out of that hotel alive as quickly as I could, and through some channel other than the front stairs and lobby. Rising softly and throwing my flashlight on the switch, I sought to light the bulb over my bed in order to choose and pocket some belongings for a swift, bagless flight. Nothing, however, happened, and I saw that the power had been cut off. Clearly, some cryptic, evil movement was afoot on a large scale. Just what, I could not say. As I stood pondering with my hand on the now useless switch, I heard a muffled creaking on the floor below. I thought I could barely distinguish voices in conversation, 
A moment later, I felt less sure that the deeper sounds were voices, since the apparent hoarse barkings and loose-syllabled croakings bore so little resemblance to recognized human speech. Then I thought with renewed force just what the factory inspector had heard in the night. Having filled my pockets with the flashlight's aid, I put on my hat and tiptoed to the windows to consider chances of descent. Despite the state's safety regulations, there was no fire escape on this side of the hotel, and I saw that my window commanded only a sheer three-story drop to the cobbled courtyard. On the left and right, however, some ancient brick business blocks abutted the hotel, their slant roofs coming up to a reasonable jumping distance from my fourth-story level. To reach either of these lines of buildings, I would have to be in a room two doors from my own, in one case on the north and in the other case on the south, and my mind instantly set to work, calculating what chances I had of making the transfer. And this, my darling, ends our story time for today. As always, I hope that you have very sweet and creepy dreams.